and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I had the bizarre experience recently of performing on Facebook Live. It's weird, isn't it? It's not just me. It's quite weird. Following on from last episode, where I spoke about performing in front of a care home audience, albeit distantly, Mark and I were invited to do a half-hour set for Estilo Fest, the brainchild of Rob and Verity Simmons of Estilo String Quartet. For those who are uninitiated, they were my guests for episode 19, so check that one out later. There was music on the hour every hour for the whole day, and it was great. But I tell you, if there's one thing music college definitely didn't prepare me for, it's performing on Facebook Live. The stress! I wish I could be one of those people who just rocks up to the task and gets on with it, but being me, of course, and it being the first time I've ever done one of these things, discovered loads of little things to think about. What mic should we use? Where should we place it? Whose computer should we use? How do we angle the camera? Why does Mark's computer make us look red? How do we make it look like we're playing our instruments normally and not left-handed? Oh, we'd better disconnect the doorbell so that the Amazon delivery we're expecting doesn't disrupt the performance because, despite a three-hour window, of course it would arrive during a performance. Honestly, the first two minutes of the video was just us staring at the computer going, Is it on? After this ordeal, the easy bit was performing. But still quite stressful. We'd just begun our set and I got really distracted by a man outside our front window wearing a bright orange t-shirt. And it's hard to believe anyone's watching, unless people comment or give you a like. So I found it really hard to stay professional. I checked my phone in between movements. So bad. But it was really fun, and at the end of the day, it's just nice to play, isn't it? I think, like anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it. I'm glad to know that we can do it, but we need audiences back, even if they're socially distant. We need them. My guests this episode are Fred and Lily Scott. They're a father and daughter unit. Fred's a pianist and Lily's a singer. Fred's written a book called One Autumn Day, which covers his experiences having been diagnosed with an osteosarcoma, or bone cancer, on his knee when he was only 23 years old. As well as Fred's first-hand experiences on living with, treating and surviving cancer, we talk about how this affects your perspective on life and your family. Topics also covered are family life in lockdown, home decorating, and because I'm in the room, food. Have a listen. Fred and Lily Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here today. We're here to talk about Fred's book, of course, and Lily's memories pertaining to the experiences in the book. But first of all, I have to ask this question because it's so topical. How have you guys been filling your days in lockdown? I should probably say to the listeners, your father and daughter unit, have you been in the same household? What's lockdown been like for you guys? We've only really started being able to be together since the idea of the social bubble has uh, come about. Because before that, Lily lives um, a couple of miles away in East Croydon. My immediate family, we've just been together here locked down. I've been working from home. That's it. We had not seen much of each other. You know, obviously, 
talked, etc. But we haven't actually been together. And this is probably the longest uh, that we've been together for a while. Yeah, it has. So when the whole lockdown thing happened, I was living at home and was meant to move into my flat like three days after the full on lockdown. So obviously that all got pushed back, as I'm sure you could imagine. Don't move in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, so our flat move was delayed by I think it was almost two months. So we were in by May and then isolated for like a couple of weeks. And then we mingled after that, didn't we? sort of like in the garden and things like that but um it's so weird it doesn't get any less weird does it <laughs> yeah no totally garden hangouts I mean I had a friend she's just had a baby and she said well oh. if you come over this week you can come to the garden and look at the baby but then <laughs> from next week you can come into our house it's just like what <laughs> just like as if it's just like this line kind of that's thing. it well we'd have we'd had a couple of barbies and it was um you know looking at each other at a safe two meters plus as it was then. And, you know, here's your, you know, I've just cooked this. So here it is, put it on the table, come and pick it up, but move back, you know, stay back, <laughs> which is surreal, but I suppose you've got to do it. And we did, but now it's, we're in our little bubble. So yeah. it's all good. Fingers yeah. crossed. It's all in the right direction. Yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> and of course, spending time together as a family. I think one of the nicest things in this lockdown has been like having family meals every night and just going right the way back to basics, just cooking and having cups of coffee in the morning together and, you know, playing bits of music together now and again. It's just really nice. Like it's, I think everything's a lot slower, but that's not necessarily been a bad thing. I think at the time, nobody knew anything and it was um, just a really complex situation. But I think looking back, the slightly slower pace. Personally, I think it's done me a lot of good, actually. I think um, I was running around before a bit too much. It's nice to just sort of just take it as it comes, you know. <laughs> oh, part of the pun. Oh, my God. You, you said the well name done. of the podcast in the podcast. Well done. No. <laughs> Un- unplanned, spontaneously improvised. No, the thing is, you know, oh, no. if, if I had to look back, well, one of the most positive things is literally having a family meal together every single evening. Mm. because there's nothing to distract you from that. My wife is an outstanding cook. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like, oh, let's just throw something together. Uh, She's amazing at having devised menus every night of the week. Oh, God which are just outrageous. Does she love it? Because, like, I mean, I love cooking, but even I'm getting to that point where I'm starting to get to the end of my creativity with cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, she does. And, you know, she's extraordinarily creative. She's just coming up with new stuff. What did you have last night? Because the family chat has been arrife with rumours. Well, (laughs) she invented a meal that it it has a name, but I can't remember. It's a Greek name. So, But we've called it... uh, spicy bean thing thing <laughs> um so you know it's got these uh, what are they cannellini no they're not cannellini beans they're bigger um, kidney no no they're, they're yeah they're the big ones bolotti yeah? beans yeah 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 that's mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. with sun-dried tomatoes and oh. herbs and basil and feta cheese on the top oh my goodness oh i love that that sounds amazing spicy bean thing like... spicy bean thing yeah so it's, it's fantastic see the other, the other thing the air is incredibly clean. And so uh, I I get up at stupid times in the morning. When I hear the first bird, that's it. We got got a bunch of crows and parakeets. And so whenever one of these birds decides to wake up, which is about like four o'clock, half past four, that's it. 
I'm up with the birds. <laughs> and take the dog out for a bit, and the air is incredibly clean. And it's almost like, well, this is strange. This is what it's supposed to be like, not um, fumes and, I guess, aeroplane exhaust dropping out of the sky, whatever. It's just really clear and clean. It's definitely made a lot of people reassess the pace of life. So you're running around as we all are. And when lockdown happened, cancelled gigs, and then just having to stay at home, it's like, yeah. what on earth do I do with myself? It's so, so weird. Because I think the life of a musician is sort of famously here, there and everywhere. And that's something that we love. And I think a lot of my musician friends are always saying how how much they kind of like the non-routine of it and don't like to know what they're doing in like six months or a year. They quite like that sort of, oh, okay, what's the next thing? And then to sort of have that in a way with the pandemic, because you just don't know when things, are, like what's going to be happening next year, like no one really knows. Mm. But um, I think I've tried to just take the positives, which is like I can actually get some proper sleep and <laughs> make sure I'm drinking enough water. Honestly, it sounds so boring. No, but it's just truth. It's, it's so true. I got my bottle of water here. And it's amazing because actually when I'm at home, I forget to drink water. If I'm, you know, around London from venue to venue, I have to drink water. Otherwise, I'll probably collapse on the tube or something. Yeah. But then when you're at home yeah. and you're kind of in the state of stupor all the time and you just forget to drink water and then you, you think, God, why am I so angry today? And then you have a sip of water and it's like, oh, actually, I'm just silly. I just forgot to hydrate. Totally. But it sounds like lockdown in general has been treating both of you quite positively. And I imagine that both of you have a pretty positive insight from what I gather having read Fred's book, which is why we're here today. As much as we can talk about spicy bean thing and garden <laughs> and birds. So we're here to talk about Fred's book, One Autumn Day. And so I came across the book from Lily, who very kindly got in touch last decade, literally, <laughs> in December. And you very kindly sent me the book. And then I moved three times in a month. And suppose to say the book did get misplaced. You know what? It was it did come from house to house with me. So I had your book and the rough guide to Iceland, because I was planning to go to Iceland in June this year. That didn't oh. Really? Oh, we were as well. Oh, we we might be at the same time. It's our thirtieth anniversary year and we had planned just wanted to go to Iceland, but Keldamage, same here. I know, I'll tell you. Yeah, well, one day, one day we'll make yes, it to Iceland. Indeed. And yeah. And I've got both of those books now, so I kept them together. When it came to unpack the books in May, when we finally got our bookcase, couldn't find either of the books until I turned the flat upside down. And then I think I told you, I found them in an interior pocket <laughs> in a suitcase inside another suitcase on top of the wardrobe. Both books. <laughs> <laughs> so I found the book and I devoured it in a matter of a few days and I, I really, really enjoyed it. So Fred, can you tell us a bit more about the book for those who haven't read it? What's it about? Well, first of all, thank you for reading it because um, it's a grueling experience. Some of it was quite visceral. Yeah, well, see, what I did was I asked the hospitals to send me all my medical notes and reading through all those notes made me confront some things about the processes that were involved in the surgeries. The, well, the, the reason I, I wrote it in the first place was because I was recovering from um, surgery at home and I just, you know, I talked about it with Emma and figured out I should get this down. I should get this down on paper 
out of my system because it might be a way of helping others who are going through similar experiences to understand the dynamic. And because at that point in 2016, that was 31 years after the diagnosis. Yeah. So just to clarify for people who don't know, you were diagnosed at the age of, was it 23? Yep, 1985. With a very aggressive bone cancer. Osteogenic sarcoma otherwise known as osteosarcoma, which just means uh, it's a sarcoma, which has its origin in your bone. And it can occur anywhere in your body, essentially. But for osteosarcoma, one of the problems with it is the diagnosis is often very late because it can statistically affect young people. Normally, you're an active young person and the symptoms get disguised. So it'll be, oh, I've got an injury I've got a sports injury. I've done, you know, this, this, this bump is just water on the knee. And I had several false starts in terms of diagnoses back in the day. And at the time you were very active yourself. Is that right? You were, you were running, you're working out a lot. And so it just felt quite unlikely that something like that would happen to you. Well, I was, I was studying, I was at the Royal Academy and I was working very hard at that. And as an antidote, I was, in the gym as well, six days a week and in the pool and running. So I had no idea. There was a bit of mystery weight loss, which was weird because when, when you're training as, as much as I was and pushing yourself and doing a lot of weights and stuff, you, you <laughs> the last thing you expect is you're going to lose weight. You know? Yeah, you, you're trying to put weight on, aren't you? Trying to bulk up. But it was just falling off. I didn't really know what was going on. So the whole experience at the time, Back in those days, there was no counselling, no precedent for what you're going through. And there's certainly a lack of information. People have to understand that, um, you know, you were lucky if you had a calculator that was high tech. Answering machines for your phone, what? <laughs> you know, nothing. Computers, are you joking? You know, yeah. these things might be at Imperial College in an obscure lab, but they're not on your, on your lap. You, we didn't have them. So there's no source of information other than what you get from your doctors. And an average GP will see, probably as the stats have changed very much, they'll see one osteosarcoma in their career. God. So, you know, so it's, it's, it's pretty rare. It's as much of a surprise for them as it is for you. Yeah. Gosh. And then, of course, you went through the journey of having your chemotherapy, which you write about in detail in the book. And I think what I really want to say is that I'm, you know, you said that you wanted to get it out of your system and write it down. And I'm very grateful that you did because there are a lot of things in the book that people don't know about necessarily, or people don't talk about. For example, you know, the grim reality of going through chemotherapy. I think you write about it in great detail. And also the fact that you talk a lot about different perspectives when you're going through all of this, focusing one day at a time. So what sort of parallels do you think people can draw from your experiences now that we're going through this pandemic? There's a point in the book where you talk about recitals and venues, repertoire, fitness, not really mattering anymore. So what do you think people can gain from your experiences there? Well, um, Davina, I think what seems to be uppermost in a lot of people's minds is fear. And there's a fear on so many different levels. I don't want to just sort of gloss over it because there are, there are so many uh, complexes of fear at the moment. It could be sort of insecurity around your employment, how you're going to 
support your family at this particular time. And I suppose, you know, one of the uppermost is just your health. Among my circle, if you like, which is one of my students is a doctor who had been treating patients up at Northwick Park. And she was diagnosed in March and thankfully recovered. Uh, the parents of another student of mine, both doctors, both contracted, had, had a terrible case of um, COVID and both thankfully recovered. But for all of us, there's that fear of, okay, I see stats, I see the news, I hear things, but if I catch this horrible disease, what's going to happen? I mean, th there was that fear of being outside of your family, going into intensive care for weeks, not being able to see anyone, the fear of disease. And I think, you know, th there's a certain parallel when I was on chemo, I wasn't really allowed to mix, which is, you know, obvious because your immune system is completely crushed and you can catch anything and a cold can turn into pneumonia and that's it because your body is, is weak anyway. And you just realize that everything that was really, really important to you, uh, in my case, you know, music career and developing that is utterly meaningless because it doesn't, ultimately it doesn't mean anything in a life and death situation you're just trying to get past treatments you're relying completely on the nursing staff you're relying on on your family and friends and you're completely helpless and i think people feel that and i, I talk to people every day who are i'm, I'm teaching a lot online mm. and i'm doing my university stuff online as well so a lot of conversations going on there is a tremendous amount of fear I wouldn't say it's an unusual amount of fear because under the circumstances, there's a lot to be fearful about, but that does put into perspective our previous daily lives and what might've occupied us at the time. I think when you look back to say your last year's diary and you think about all the things that you stressed about then, and then when it's that, well, it's a classic case of you don't know what you've got until it's gone. And yep. you can't do the thing that you make a living from that you love doing. And you realize, oh gosh, well, why? Well, at least I have my health, you know, and I have my family, yep. which you do. I really enjoyed as it's, it's a funny word to use to say, I, I enjoyed your book, but I really got a lot out of it. And I think what surprised me was actually how lighthearted the tone of it was especially at the beginning, the way that you wrote is some of the narrative. Is that kind of the way that you were thinking about it at the time? Were you trying to replicate that at all? I didn't aim for a particular tone because basically if I've written anything in the past, it's either music or stuff about music. So to write something that's essentially autobiographical was completely new. So pardon the pun but it, i wrote it as it as it comes <laughs> it was more just um stream of consciousness kind of thing yeah let's try let's try and go back what what was what was i like yeah. as as a, as a young guy yeah and i think i was you know full of life a sense of humor about everything mm -hmm. didn't take anything particularly seriously except music that was that was dead serious to me that was yeah. something you don't fool around with that was uh, that was my life because of my previous experiences before um, my piano teacher, Florence Crichton, 
literally changed my life. I was going in a very bad direction indeed, um, probably because I didn't care about anything. And um, so I got into lots of different situations as a teenager that I shouldn't. But the attitude of let's just go for it uh, was quite useful. Mm-hmm. And when you realize, okay, cancer diagnosis, it's all over. So the thing you're facing every day is what everyone, that's everyone's worst fear. If you say to someone, you know, you've got three choices, uh, having, getting a cancer diagnosis is not anyone's choice. Yeah. That's like the ultimate, that's the worst mm-hmm. thing that could happen to me. So if the worst thing that could happen to you has happened, yeah, well, that's it. You either yeah. lie down or you say, okay, well, I'm still breathing. So let's, let's get on with it. And there is a lot of humor to find yeah. <laughs> in, in really dark situations. I think that's what really surprised me, actually. And, and, and I kept reading because you don't hear the sort of the humor that much in a cancer survivor's story. And I think that's what makes it quite unique. I mean, it's easy to think, well, I mean, obviously we think it's a very, very grim situation, but just to, to hear about like, you know, the innermost thoughts that were going on in your brain as a 23 year old is just, is quite refreshing. Well, I've got to pay, I really want to take a second just to pay tribute to um, one of my ward mates, who's a, a young man called Jeff whose aspiration was to be a racing driver. And we were in adjacent beds. Everything I went through, he was going through. He had a different type of cancer, but he was on, the, on chemo and all the rest of it. And we formed an instant friendship and a bond based on what we were going through. And we had to both be positive because on the other side of our ward, which was nicknamed Death Row, there was a chap who just was in such a dreadful state of advanced disease. And one night he was wheeled out in a steel box. You know, he died. And your humor becomes grim because you really just don't know how much your body can take. And I've got to say, chemo, as one of my doctors, Professor Beejan, observes these days, it's a lot kinder because... Cancer Research UK and other research bodies have done such a fantastic job of helping to mitigate the dreadful side effects. But back in those days, chemo was a bit like saying, right, I'm going to weed my garden. And what I'm going to use is a thermonuclear bomb. Now, there might be some fallout, but I'll get rid of those weeds forever, uh, along with everything else. So that's the thing. There's that incredible brutality that's happening to you you know, no one is snarling at you as they put the drip in your veins, but it's just, it's what's going to happen to you within 20 minutes is this incredible load Poison. of effects <laughs> that you're going to feel. Yeah, literally, it's, it's, it's killing your body. And so Jeff and I would often laugh and joke about it. And, you know, when we got tired of talking to each other, literally too tired to talk, then the old Walkman went on. And there were certain pieces of music back then. I mean, the thing I played all the time, on loop was a Pete Townsend tune called Give Blood. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, but it just had this unbelievable uh, rhythm track, Simon Phillips on drums and, you know, Palladino on bass. It was unbelievable. Dave Gilmore on guitar and Townsend going off over the top. And 
it's grim and determined. And then at the end, it lightens up, turns into the major. Hmm. And it's, it just kept me on loop. I mean, it's just, what a track. I mean, just amazing. I mean, that's got to be the biggest testament to the uplifting nature of music, right? Well, 100%. And the thing I will say is this. We had a camaraderie because we didn't know what the future held. You know, we both went out of hospital after chemo to go home and recover. And I lost contact. And it wasn't until months later down the track, I was walking into hospital to get treatment. And walking out of hospital was one of our nurses, Margaret. She looked really sort of pale and withdrawn. And we'd normally had a, a very lighthearted interaction. Uh, well, her, her and Jeff had become very close. And he had died. Mm. And that was, that was dreadful because I was hoping we'd see each other again and be able to have that camaraderie. But that sort of brings it home that even your friends in adversity can be taken out of the equation by the disease and it could be you next. And so, you know, I want to pay tribute to Jeff because he kept me going at that particular point. All of my ward mates who for the most part were incredibly positive. The ones that were positive made it through for the most part. But if you give in, if you're defeatist, something just happens inside your soul. That's the thing about cancer, isn't it? It, it doesn't discriminate. Absolutely not. There's no, it, it's, it's got nothing to do with, um, I mean, mine was nothing to do with lifestyle. Back then I was, I was eating an incredibly healthy diet. I was as fit as anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a ridiculously low resting pulse rate, all the rest <laughs> of it. But all that disguised the symptoms. Yeah. Absolutely. That's a wonderful tribute. And it's always important to remember those people, as you say, in adversity with you, because they help make you who you are now and, you know, help create that perspective and approach to life that you have. Uh, So you went on to have a successful career and still have a successful career as a session musician and a teacher. I think what was quite surprising also in the book was that you got to the end of your treatment, but there was still half the book left. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no spoilers for anyone who hasn't read the book, but yeah, halfway through. And of course, I mean, that's another thing that people don't talk about is surviving cancer, but also living with the aftermath. And people tend to think, survive cancer, that's it, tick. But that's not the case. And so you do go into depth about your life afterwards. So how did surviving cancer affect your day-to-day life as a working musician? I've got to pay tribute to a really, really good dear friend of mine, Roy Carter. If it was not for Roy Carter, one day when I was at one of the lowest points at home, back in the family home, he just showed up one day and delivered an old Yamaha DX7. And I said, well, what's this for? You know, I don't play anymore because that's the point I got to. That was it. I I didn't even, wasn't thinking about music. I was listening to it, but I wasn't thinking about it. And he dropped off a keyboard and said, well, you know, just, you know, it's here. You can, there's an amp, there's a DX7, just go for it. Enjoy yourself. I I didn't know what to do. You know, obviously I did know what to do with it, but I didn't feel inclined to do anything with it. Mm. But Roy left that keyboard with me, called me up, said, how's it going? I said, well, you know, found a couple of chords, you know, Um, nothing, nothing heavy going down. I don't know what I'm doing. So he invited me to a jam with some friends I had no idea what was going to become of that, but essentially 
that led to him inviting me to be the keyboard player for Heatwave, which was the band he was in. And I yeah. became their session, one of their session keyboardists for a couple of tours and some recording, which was a remarkable way back into the music business because it was all over. Mm. And nothing I could do about it. That's the whole thing. When you when you're young and you're going for auditions, you know, you it, it is, you know, you've got to go for it. You've got to build yourself up and believe in yourself and all this sort of stuff. Uh, what I found is that the other side of the coin is when it's all taken away, it's other people that can bring you back in. It's literally a lifeline at that point, isn't it? You have to accept that it's nothing to do with you anymore. Yeah. That Roy who remains a dear friend to this day. There's an Earth, Wind & Fire track called Blood Brothers. Yeah. And that is a track that we often talk about. He is, he is from the East End as well, where I was originally from. And so we are literally blood brothers. That's how we refer to each other. And he got me back into the music business with all the confidence that came from him and um, the, the drummer in Heatwave, uh, whose name is Bilbo Berger. But, who told me that uh, you got no rhythm, man? You got no rhythm. You got. I said, but I was educated in music at the Royal Academy, dude. You don't tell me. <laughs> that. Yeah, but it doesn't mean anything. You can't play a simple beat. Beethoven. <laughs> <laughs> but I went to the Ram. <laughs> That's it. Don't mean anything. To, you know, in serious session terms. Yeah. If you're not delivering, you know, you can't. That's so That's true. It. You're you're judged on what you put out on the day. No one's going to be checking your CV. <laughs> no interest at that moment. Yeah. But how was it? You know, you're working, you're gigging, you're recording all the time. And then, you know, you had afflictions with your leg afterwards, complications later on. But how did that affect your working life? One of my doctors, Dr. Philip Savage, who is just one of a great long list of people that I pay tribute to in the book, he coined the term sequelae, which is as in sequel, but the plural. So these are the things that follow on. Yeah, when you mentioned, oh, well, you, you know, your last chemo was halfway through the book. So what's the rest of it about? Um, well, it's, it's a story of the after effects. Yeah. You don't expect to survive. And when you realize that one day becomes two, becomes seven, becomes 30, that then becomes six months, that becomes a year. And then you think, wow, that's the first anniversary. Mm. And then you think, well, how long is this going to last? You know, And then it becomes 1987, 1988. You know. It's always there, isn't it? Kind of lurking over your shoulder. Well, I still live in some senses from appointment to appointment. Mm -hmm. You know, I did mention it's getting up ridiculously early nonsense. My first waking thought is often... Uh, how did you get here? Wow. You're 58 years old. What is going on? Because I sometimes wake up and I think I'm 18, you know, and then, oh, ah, you know, oh, my back. Oh, ah. you know, yeah, I have those thoughts realize, as well. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> You're so young, you have no need to think like that. But, um, you know, that's the reminder. Oh, you are actually an old geezer of 58. So, you know, but... I suppose over the, the second half of the book, without any spoilers, that really is the point to me of survivorship because survivorship is not really something that is greatly understood because mm. of the consequences of living after cancer are that you, you have what's now defined as a, a permanent disability. 
my disability is because I've had a whole lot of work on knee replacements. I've had four in total on the same leg. They're only supposed to last a certain number of years. So if you get an infection or you wear them out, you've got to go back in for revision. So I've had a total of four. And with that, it affects your posture. I developed some spinal issues, had spinal surgery, which I don't know. I don't think I wrote about that, but I had spinal surgery and I'm on a list for a thing called a spinal fusion, which I'm not keen to have because I don't want any more surgery. I've had, I had to have hand surgery for a injury after a, I was in three very serious car accidents. Oh my God. Non-fault. One was a head-on collision with my entire family in the car going down the A23 with a driver that had fallen asleep and pulled straight into our lane. That broke my hand. Then there were two others when someone hit me from behind, which gave me a neck injury, which reduced sensation in my right hand. And you can still, you can still play fine? I went through a phase of thinking, I was having an awful lot of physio and seeing various specialists and doctors and uh, BAPAM really helped. Uh, British Association of Performing Arts Medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to them. They're amazing. Yeah. They're an amazing, incredible organization. And well, I, I had altered sensation and nerve damage. Uh, I've lost the ability to do certain things, but if you can't trill with your right hand, you simply cross your left hand over. <laughs> Good As, thing you got another hand. <laughs> and then when you can't do it with that hand, then you do it with your toes. <laughs> That's well, people have asked me, I said, what are you, is it? Is this some sort of pose? This thing you do at the beginning <laughs> of that piece with your hands crossed? I said, well, you could say that, or you could blame it on a car crash and vertebrae damage oh, in the neck, you know. So, um, there are things that you have to learn to accommodate, to yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. just sort of the way it is. Um, you just gotta take it. You've really had a lot thrown at you in your life but i'll tell you the truth i've had much more i've had much more given Mm. i mean to be frank with you back in those days chemo you know i was told okay uh you're gonna lose your hair oh no well if you're vain yeah uh that's a bad one and in in the 80s it was about lustrous hairdos of course the 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 new romantics that's it flock of seagulls that's it. I wasn't exactly there, um, but, you know, I had hair. So to lose that and lose every, every body hair, to stop shaving for six months. But then the serious ones. Okay, well, the, the drugs are really strong. Kidney damage. You're going to lose your hearing. All kinds of things. You lose the sensation in your fingertips. All this kind of stuff. And it's going to wreck your internal organs. And we don't talk about recovery. We talk about survival rates and length of time you're going to survive. Mm. And there's always the fear that with the strength of those drugs, you'll be rendered infertile through the treatment. And these are not things that used to be discussed. Right. It's just, you know, if you found a leaflet about it somewhere in the hospital, you were lucky. But you're not thinking about, oh, what about having a family one day? Because you're like, well, I'm going to be dead yeah. in three months. And as you said, you know, you're just thinking from appointment to appointment. You're, there's no way that you can even think you know, five years down well, no, the line. No one's going to have a relationship with you either, by the way, because you're, you've got cancer. Mm-hmm. So you're not, the, you're not a great prospect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone can get past your bald head and your thin, wasted frame and uh, 
you know, now your mum's going to love you for who you are, which is great. But uh, (laughs) beyond that, it's a little bit dicey. So the the thing that just inspires me every day is the most unlikely thing, Mm -hmm. which was um, that uh, Emma became my wife. Yeah. And I have three children. Yeah. So spoiler, we've got one of your spoilers right here in the room. (laughs) Millie Scott. Hello. In, in no no way should be here, but she forced herself into the world. And I can, I can see how you, how you feel so great when you put it like that. You know, you think so much about having things thrown at you and taken away, but then also it's an opportunity to be given things as well. Lily's done an amazing job of, of sitting there very quietly. I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, not at all. Is that the longest period you've ever been um, quiet in your whole life? <laughs> I think it might be. <laughs> probably. Congrats. Oh, probably my gosh. Is. And we have it on record as well. Yeah. <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested in how the journey with cancer affected your family. But one thing that we don't really talk about so much is the people on the sidelines as well, you know, the community, family. And Lily, what were your memories of this as a child, you know, with your dad's frequent trips to Stanmore to visit the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital. What was Mm -hmm. your scale of comprehension throughout all of this? And how did this affect you then and even now? Well, when I think back to those kind of early days when dad was having his surgery, so what knee replacement would that have been? The third? I think it was maybe the second or third? You, you You were on the scene for the two, three and four. Okay, right. So this must have been, so I think my earliest memory is the second one. I think I must have been about five or six years old Mm -hmm. and we had not long moved from Australia to the UK. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We lived abroad. So for the, the early years of my life, we were kind of in Australia and America and other places as well. But I remember kind of settling down in South London and, um, I remember going to school and uh you know it would always be mum taking us to school dad would take us occasionally and then mum would sort of like very gently put sometimes like oh daddy's got a bit of a sore leg today so we're gonna make dinner and then we're gonna you know do your homework have a bath and then mummy's gonna just go and uh make sure that daddy's leg is okay and i'll see you in the morning and we'll go to school and obviously as a five-year-old kid in a really happy home you think cool what's for dinner (laughs) so there were moments where literally the scenario that I just described with mum being like oh just gonna look after dad that was literally what happened and um so I won't tell you what happens but uh in the book dad talks about a moment where he'd come back from hospital and his leg wasn't in the best way and then had to go straight back to Mm. hospital and bless my mum she would kind of raise me and my brother my little sister wasn't born yet and she would do school with us food all the rest of it and then drive the three-hour drive or whatever it is to Stanmore from South London to be with dad then come back and I remember we would have some time off school to go and visit dad but I think what you always did a really good job of is not letting on what was going on because we were really young I'm talking like five and two so obviously you're not mm. going to tell your, your two-year-old um <laughs> what's really going on you're just going to be like oh you know having a having a bit of a bad day with it the doctor's gonna help and da, 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 da. and I just remember like sitting on your lap in the hospital watching 
like 64 Zulane. I don't oh, know yeah. if anyone is kind of between mm. the ages of like 22 and 27. There was this iconic kids program <laughs> called 64 Zulane and it had the most like the catchiest theme tune ever. And I remember we would sit with one of those like portable DVD players and just watch <laughs> that in hospital. And um we didn't we never really stayed for that long because you would have been you know now i know that you would have been tired or about to have morphine or whatever so we'd literally do this really long journey watch an episode of something with you you'd tell us about your day we'd tell you about school or whatever and then we'd go home in the car and then we'd see you in a couple of days and it just felt like a routine it it was never kind of made out to be this chore like oh gotta go to the hospital it wasn't that it was like oh we're just gonna go and see dad now uh oh have you have you uh, got your book to read for the car and have you got this so at the time obviously I didn't really know what was going on but obviously now I certainly do and in my teenage years I think it definitely really hit me like oh my goodness what a huge thing to go through and what a massive impact that had on our family I just can't believe how well you did that I think I could do it I think I'd just be so dramatic about everything like I just <laughs> I don't know how you did it. You'd find a way, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but I, I guess that's the thing with with kids, isn't it? It's hard to contextualise with children, mm. isn't it? Because you, you've got to tell them one thing, but not tell them too much, you know, because you're, you're kind of maybe trying to protect them. But I know that my, my sister, for example, when she was in London when the whole pandemic thing hit, and then she had to go back to New Zealand, where her family is, and go into a strict 14-day quarantine within her house and how do you explain to children what's going on like they're kind of aware of this word virus coronavirus mm. COVID-19 but they don't really know what it means and I, I think they came up with my family came up with this um, thing that they were going to tell her kids that she was on a mission from the prime minister Jacinda Ardern <laughs> oh, has told her <laughs> Jacinda Ardern has set mummy a task and she has to be in quarantine for 14 days <laughs> but isn't that just brilliant. that's so brilliantly inventive and it protects your family it doesn't put your children in a weird situation where they have to deal with a concept that they just can't even understand children are really intelligent I'm not trying to say that they're not but like you, you don't want to sort of put the burden on it on little children do you because yeah. they're already going through a lot you know <laughs> exactly like it'd be just quite strange if you as a five-year-old were talking you know so fluently about sarcomas and <laughs> things like oh, that yeah I think what I feel as the generator of the of the situation you get an incredible amount of guilt you're a survivor why you why these why did some of your friends not make it mm. and then why is this being inflicted by me on sort of people i love the most in the world and to this day it's a miraculous thing when i think of my wife and what she's had to endure and put up with but would never complain about it's just like look you know we love each other this is it this yeah. is life no sense of regret or blame or anything like that it's just this is our situation yeah you know let's let's get on with it i think when i look at the children i cannot again to this day believe how confident lily is as a human being given that at a crucial point in her life, everything was undermined. You know, your dad might be about to die. Your dad is, you know, in really, really bad shape again and again and again. And 
how are you supposed to thrive mm. when the foundations of your family are rocked to the point where, oh, where's dad? Oh, he's hours and hours away uh, in a life-threatening situation in another part of London. You know, it's not the other side of the world, but when you're that young, you know, three hours in a car, it might as well be. I imagine in the situation, you know, you have to have such a great sense of pragmatism and just getting on with the job and going through something like what you've gone through is passed on and inherited by the next generation because it's, it's the example that you set and then it becomes the normal where we just get on with our daily lives because we have to. That's exactly it because I think... Um dad and mum have an amazing work ethic and I remember them um you know always saying when we were younger always got to work hard you have to do all the work and you will be rewarded something that you said to me that I literally think of every single day there's two things I think of every single day there's one thing that my amazing drama teacher from school Mr Leary he said do it again but do it better. And he literally just said that. I think it was like a rehearsal for just something in a classroom. And I just thought, that's so wise. Do it again, but do it better. So I think of that every day. And then the other thing I think of is something that you said to me, Dad, which was there's a lot more good in the world than there is bad, but you do have to look harder to find it. Mm. And you said that to me when I was really, really young. And it's true. There is so much amazing stuff in this world. There's amazing people. There are brilliant opportunities. Yeah. Art, nature, all the rest of it. Friendship, love, all of these amazing, amazing things. And there's that can be harder to see when there's a lot of heavy, not very nice stuff going on. There's stuff that you just need to filter out, isn't there? And it goes back to what you were saying, Fred, about how you've been given so much as well as having things taken away. Yeah, mm. no question. Absolutely yeah. no question. It just, it all, it all makes sense. I love it. Do it again, but do it better. <laughs> I love that's, that's profound. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say that to all my students that I teach. It's just the perfect way to say exactly what you mean. Yeah, exactly. It's always interpreted the right way. You can't interpret that. Yeah, it's not like funny or anything. It's not like when you just say, <laughs> you just need to play what's on the page. And it's like, mm, not helpful. But like, <laughs> something like, <laughs> you know, something like, do it again, but do it better. You've got to click into that mode of, I've got to assess what I did, I've got to evaluate. And I've got to do it myself because yep. what is better, you've got to define better before you can make it better. That's it. I have a segment in my podcast called the wildcard question round, which is where you both have the opportunity to choose what I ask you next based on three questions. So who wants to go first? Ladies first, Lily Scott. All right. Over to Bring you. It on. Bring Scott. it on. These are quite a sudden gear shift from what we've just been discussing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess that's just the way we go at the moment. So you have the choice of the last thing you ate, what I'm doing next, and your last gig before lockdown. What I'm doing next. Okay. So what are you doing next? right after this interview, but also what do you plan to do after lockdown? So directly after this interview, we're going to sit down and have a family dinner. Uh, <laughs> spicy bean thing. Yes, I, it will be something great like that. I think we're going for something Italian tonight. Can't wait. So that's what I'm doing immediately after this. In the next couple of weeks, so 
I mentioned I've moved house. I am obsessed with interiors now on a scary <laughs> level. Oh, I yes. cannot remo- I cannot get off Pinterest for more than about 10 minutes at a time. I am absolutely loving just decorating and drove I think it was like 45 minutes each way to get an old wheelbarrow that I could put on my balcony and put plants in oh great oh Oh, just things like that I'm really enjoying making the flat look lovely putting my recording setup in there as we speak actually so I can finally do some recording stuff from there rather than having to come back here so it's great here but it'll be good to have it there I'm actually working on a couple of projects, so a couple of like session projects. Some of some things with some other artists, so mm-hmm. working with some poets and some painters and designers to come up with some stuff that I'm going to be like arranging some music for, which will be exciting. Oh, amazing. I have to say, in terms of like making your flat look nice, one of my favourite places to go to now is Homebase. And it's only because like I've recently got a garden since March. Never went to home base before in my life since lockdown. I'm like, when's home base open? I've got to queue. I've got to wake up early. I've got to go. I've got to get my 120 litres of compost. Absolutely. <laughs> it's so joyful. Any kind of like homeware store is just yeah. amazing. I hear you there. You yeah. can be so creative. I love it. Well, you're going to have to send me some pictures of your wheelbarrow plant creation because that just sounds divine. Oh, I will. One of my friends, is she's an amazing gardener and she actually bought over some plants for me and I'm terrified that they're going to die. So <laughs> I'm getting trellises and the plant food and I'm just like, let's get this garden looking you can do it I was a plant killer but now I just ate my first two cucumbers the other day and they were absolutely lush and I've had in five weeks of harvesting I've had 76 courgettes so I'm doing I think I'm doing okay that's a 70 what are you gonna do with 76 courgettes I mean some of them some of them are like really weeny they're really small they still count but yeah I've been eating them in like pastas or just by themselves eating the flowers too you've got to do that do you take orders and do you deliver I can make an exception for you guys. Oh, South East London, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'm probably going to be faced with a glut of tomatoes fairly soon, so I'll keep you posted about that. Yes, now we're talking. Now we are talking. You can add that for your family meal. <laughs> the best way I've ever heard tomatoes described is by Nigella Lawson. I don't know if you've ever done a Nigella recipe. Desserts are always incredible. But... Um, yeah, so what you can't see behind on my bookshelf, her entire compendium. Really? <laughs> Oh, she is my favorite person on the planet. I just love her. Yeah, yeah. She's the best. And she talks about tomatoes jubilantly spritzing when you put them in a in a frying pan and if that's not the best description of a tomato that you've ever heard in your life, you need to get a new cookbook because it's just amazing. Yeah, the way she writes about food is definitely poetry. I can talk about food for ages, as I'm sure you know already. <laughs> <laughs> so, Fred, it's time for your wild card question round. Oh. So, a little refresher. The last thing you ate, let's talk about food a little bit more. <laughs> what I'm doing next and your last gig before lockdown. I am going to opt, if I may, to talk about what I'm going to do next because we've we touched on food. And the gig goes on, just to quote Led Zeppelin, the song remains the same. <laughs> one has to keep rambling on. Yeah. Um, get that one in. Okay, in terms of what I'm doing next, I'll be very quick. Right, I've committed during the summer to building a new garden shed from scratch. 
including the foundation. Home base. <laughs> I was there yesterday because I'm going to board out the loft with loft legs and loft boards, and I'm going to repair the front fence. So instead of handing over two grand, I figured out that it costs you about 30 quid yeah. and some sweat. You've got the time, and if the weather's good, then you might as well do it yourself, right? Exactement. That's it. So a couple of music projects, because um, I like to be busy. I'm finishing off writing a chapter for a book that's uh, edited by Dr. Paul Fleet at Newcastle University. He's a really good friend of mine. He's, he's put together a book on um, the period following tonality and on the way into atonality called Mining the Gap. And I'm doing a chapter on uh, the mature piano music of Busoni. And I have to go and record some of it, which is I don't, it's not like a chore, so I'd love to do it. My son is going to be a recording engineer, and we're going to do that recording at um, Phoenix Pianos down at Hurstwood Farm, a COVID-secure environment with the best pianos in the world, which is awesome. So that's happening tomorrow. And after that, I can get back to work. I'm a PhD which, surprise, surprise, is about the composer Busoni <laughs> and his opera, Dr. Faust, mm -hmm. which has a big message for where we are in history right now. So yeah. I like to be busy, got a lot on, and it just requires time management. But if someone says, what are you going to do next? The normal answer is, I'm going to do irreparable damage to a cup of tea. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, the great British way, right? Believe oh, it. We get through a lot of tea. <laughs> I, I have to say that both of you have got such a positive outlook on life and you're both very, very good at, you know, seeing the light in a situation. So thank you so much for sharing those those insights with me. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll tell listeners to look out for the book because everyone should read it. It's great and very easy to read, as I mentioned before. It will surprise you <laughs> in many different <laughs> ways. Where can people find out more about the book and yourselves? My Instagram is at underscore underscore Lily Scott. Dad's is at Fred Scott Music. And you can find all the links to One Autumn Day on there. My son is a web designer as well. And he put together a website which is all the w's uh, oneautumnday.co.uk and uh, the book's up on um, amazon uh, just one little thing about that i wanted to write this book and raise money for cancer charities i self-published it because i didn't see any point at all mm. in giving someone 30 percent for simply doing something i could do myself and so uh like the fence. Like the fence. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I'm going to pay myself for that. <laughs> so I'm pretty fired up. No, the thing is, I, I thought, yeah, yeah, you can go and find an agent and all the rest of it, and they're going to cut it to pieces, and you won't end up saying what you want to say. And if you publish your own book, you say whatever you want. And someone doesn't like it, but they don't like it. Uh, I had a wonderful editor, and I could make sure that fundraising I did went to the charities it was supposed to go to, and not via some funnel. So that's very important to me. The thing I'd, I'd encourage people to do is if they want to make donations to Skeletal Cancer Action Trust, all that information is in the book. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing all your words today with me and the listeners. And we'll tell everyone to check out your book. Well, thank you so much, Davina. And thanks for your time. And it's just been a great opportunity for me to spend a bit of time with Lily doing 
this uh, extraordinary experience of the podcast. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Oh, thank you so much, Davina. Thank you. That was Fred and Lily Scott. It was heartwarming chatting to them, and I owe them lots of tomatoes. Please check out the links in the show notes to the charities mentioned in the conversation, as well as Fred's book. Continuing our theme of online teaching, this episode's Music College Didn't Prepare Me comes from the pianist community. I recently asked people what something they say all the time that illustrates their frustration with teaching online. Naturally, teaching piano presents different challenges from other instruments, as you need to be able to display your hands as well as your face. So I think I've seen as you need to be able to display your hands as well as your face, and at times your feet. So I've seen various get-ups of multiple devices to get different camera angles from teachers. But you can't expect your students to have the same setup. As before, I've taken a little bit of liberty as to how some of these sound. Uh, you have a very beautiful face, but I would like to see the keyboard and your hands, please. Okay, now look at bar five and correct the F sharp. No, don't look at the screen. Look at bar five. Don't look at the screen. Look at your music. It's next to the screen, not the screen. There's nothing written on the screen. Okay, I know you put your device on the book stand, but if you put your music in front of your device on the book stand as well, then I can't see you. I can't see you. I can't see you. It's gone black. What are your feet doing? Are they in the right place? I hope so. I can't see them. No, 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 no. You don't need to put your phone under there. It's fine. It's fine. I trust you. Thank you, pianists. And the school term is wrapping up here in the UK, so hope all you music teachers enjoy a well-deserved break. I know I will be. It'll be nice to scream profanities again without having to hit mute. If you have something that music college didn't prepare you for, be it a funny gig you once did in days of yore, or just something you're struggling with at the moment, I mean, that's everything these days, then let me know. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Huge thanks to Fred and Lily Scott for joining me on the podcast and sharing their positive outlook on life with everyone. And as always, thank you for listening. Do get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com or via the website asitcomes.com. Like and follow the pod on Facebook and Instagram at As It Comes Pod. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word. Thanks again to those who've already done so. Chat to you soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.